You're listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 1, The Visalia Ransacker. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Now, one of the detectives originally assigned to the Visalia Ransacker case was Detective Bill McGowan. He came face-to-face with the suspect one night while staking out a neighborhood. Action News reporter Christina Fan spoke to his son, who says his father dedicated his life to breaking the case. That's right, Liz. Bill McGowan was injured that night when he tried confronting the Visalia ransacker. He was also able to catch a glimpse of the man's face. Some believe that may be the reason why burglaries in Visalia abruptly ended after that night. Bill gave an interview to reporters later that day, explaining how he yelled for a shadowy figure to stop. That man fired back, and the bullet hit the detective's flashlight, ricocheting into his eye. I fell down, uh, the, the impact uh, knocked me back, and uh, uh, he continued to run, uh, throwing some uh, uh, items, uh, apparently uh, taken the burglary. town of Visalia, California, was a very quiet town in the 1970s until an infamous prowler began to strike fear in those who lived there. There are a handful of incidents that occurred in the summer of 1973 that are suspected to be related to the Visalia Ransacker, or VR for short. These incidents, however, don't necessarily fit the full ammo of the VR, but may be connected. Both of the events occurred on South Demary Street, a residence there reported prowler activity in the area. However, nothing came of this. A few weeks later, that home was ransacked in May. In June, another residence was also ransacked on the same street. On September 3, 1973, on West Kawea Avenue, a 15-year-old girl reported that while she was in her bedroom, she heard a noise at her window. She opened her blinds and witnessed a man peeking in the window. He ran off as soon as he was spotted. The suspect was described as a white male in his mid-20s with light blonde hair, He had a smooth, round face. On September 10, 1973, on West Kauai Avenue, the mother of the 15-year-old from September 3rd was walking to the curb from her home where her car was parked when she heard a loud noise near her fence. She turned towards the source of the noise and saw a man was leaving her backyard. He jogged away slowly and noticed that she was watching him. Upon noticing, he shouted, Catch you later, Sandy and was on his way. She later told police that she thought he was talking to a fake accomplice. The description was the same as her daughter's, adding that he was around 5'10 to 5'11 with a medium build. The fifth possible VR incident occurred in September as well. This was on West Feimster. A 16-year-old spotted a prowler outside of her bedroom window. A sixth report occurred with the same female at the same residence. 
She was being peeped on again. This time her boyfriend confronted the man. The prowler took off running and said, looks like this guy's got us here, Ben, when he was caught. The two talked for a while, but the confrontation ended because the boyfriend thought that the prowler was reaching for a gun. These incidents may not be the work of the VR, but they could possibly be. The events that occurred at the 16-year-old's home are believed to be the work of someone else, but an investigator that later encountered the peeper says they looked very similar. An additional 7th and 8th event was reported on West Feimster Avenue in January of 1974. There were multiple reports of prowling. Event number 7 was at the same residence as events 5 and 6, but event 8 was next door. It's unclear if it was related to the events in 1973. In event 8, the woman in the residence saw a man staring into her window. He was noticed and then jumped her fence. He was described as having a round, pale face and small eyes. She also reported that he had a screwdriver. There was another possible event that was a little, with little to no details and occurred on March 19th of 1974 on West Walnut Avenue. This may not be the VR. This is where the known VR events begin to occur, starting in April 1974. If the other events described so far are connected to the VR, this makes it number 10. April 6th or 7th, 1974, on South Linda Vista Drive. A piggy bank was stolen. On April 6th or 7th, on South Whitney Street, a piggy bank was also stolen. Two more events occurred on South Whitney Street, where several more items were stolen. However, details are very minimal. May 4th, 1974. The 14th ransacking occurs on South Dolner Street. A coin collection and cash was stolen. May 5th, West Feimster Avenue, a piggy bank and money was stolen. May 10th and or 11th, West Tulare Avenue, a coin bank, money, a 380 Remington automatic pistol, and ammunition was stolen. May 11th, on South Whitney Street, cash, wedding cards are stolen. We're up to 17 ransackings at this point. This theme continues on. We just wanted to go through the beginning in detail just to give a feel of how many of these there actually are. From this point forward, we're going to discuss only the ransackings of note. To highlight a few of the strange things that are stolen during the ransackings, blue chip stamps, pantyhose, cologne, single earrings from a set, a 22 revolver, three boxes of 22 ammunition, and one and a half boxes of 12 gauge ammunition. The ransackings continue on. By Thanksgiving weekend of 1974, there have been 47 ransackings. More strange items that are stolen are a bra, a lady's wallet, and two photos of a victim's children. I want to just take a pause for a minute here and discuss these ransackings as they occur. So the one thing that we didn't really mention prior to getting into the detail of the ransackings is the fact that every time that this prowler slash ransacker strikes, he enters the home and he just throws things everywhere, like just completely takes everything in the house and just shits everywhere every time he goes through your house. So anytime that we talk about this, so right now we're up to 47 times this guy has done something. Now that includes, um, I believe, cited prowlings too. So it's not necessarily that he ransacked 47 times, but it's probably in the high 30s at this point. And so every home that he's entered, he just tears it apart basically and just things are everywhere. Um, it's also rumored that at some homes, uh, he gets sexual gratification and 
makes a mess on the floor or on the windows and does strange things. Um, <laughs> and those are reports I've read, but don't know that they're fact at this point. Um, I haven't been able to confirm those. So just, you know, take that with a grain of salt. And I'm not sure if they're from any of the ransackings we've talked about to this point. However, they may be during some of the later ransackings. So that's kind of kind of weird that he goes in and tears the shit out of the place and only steals a few items. I don't I don't know what you would get out of just completely annihilating a place and then taking a few things and then taking it off. Yeah, there's something strange going on where he I mean clearly he, you know, he's getting some kind of gratification from stealing like in like items of no value. So he'll take like one earring from a set he would take costume jewelry over expensive jewelry that was sitting right next to it that he could have stolen. He occasionally takes some money and wallets and stuff, but it, he takes a lot of really strange things, Mm -hmm. which is always interesting. Well, he, it sounds like in a couple of the, the robberies, he took a couple handguns. So that, that makes him obviously dangerous that he has a couple of guns that don't belong to him. But yeah, other than that, it's just weird (laughs) stuff like women's bras and, just stuff like that. Yeah, photos of a victim's children and stuff like that is bizarre. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if they actually tie the what you called sexual gratification to this dude as we talk about this story <laughs> farther. I, yeah. Well, knowing the outcome, I don't think they uh, ever get any DNA evidence of this uh, offender. So I, I don't think they can actually tie that to any of the crimes officially, uh, if it's true. Okay. Well, I won't dive into that any further. I just thought that was a weird, a weird point that looks like he might have rubbed yes, one out on the it, floor, on the window, on his way out. Yeah, I've read on several accounts that he uh, would do it on the window and write things on the window. with uh, But again, I, I don't know that to be 100% true. Um Knowing some of the things that happened later, I believe that he did probably uh, relieve himself at the scene of some of these crimes. But um, I don't know that he was actually like sending messages, if you will. <laughs> so, Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I think I'll leave that alone. <laughs> December 21st, 1974 on West Iris Court, a ran- ransacking number 69 occurs. The ransacker stole coins, which happens at most ransackings cash and some of their keys he threw photos of their children on the ground and apparently masturbated and sprayed lotion all over the house the next day he sprayed shaving cream all over a home on february 5th 1975 the 81st incident occurred on south whitney street at the residence of claude snelling a prowler was spotted described as a white male five foot ten to six feet tall collar length hair wearing a plaid long-sleeved shirt this residence is very important and will come into play later on May 31st, 1975, the 91st incident occurs on South Sowell Street. Coins and 16 rings are stolen, and he laid out clothing and poured orange juice all over them. On July 24th, 1975, on West Kauai Avenue, a room over the garage that a family rented was ransacked. The VR was interrupted by the 19-year-old daughter. The VR pushed her down and fled the scene. The same girl was peeped on by the VR to which police began to stake out her home. It's possible that the VR was not responsible for this ransacking, 
but is likely connected. On August 31, 1975, the 106th incident occurred on West Royal Oaks Drive. A 38 Moroku revolver was stolen, which is later used in a subsequent ransacking attempt. Men's underwear was lined up and up and down the hallway from the bedroom to the bathroom. Yeah, and like right here is, you know, we went into detail more about the um, masturbating at the scene of the crimes and strewing about random things like underwear and clothes and pouring orange juice on them. He would also eat at a lot of these ransackings where he would just start ransacking a home and then just get into their food and just start eating it and leave some behind. Um, and on occasion, residents would find um, – you know, empty cans outside their house, like in the areas where he was probably prowling and stalking the homes. So, uh, you know, what's also interesting about this is during this time, he would, uh, he had, he had a clear MO where he would prowl. He would stake out your home. It looks like figure out what your patterns are and then enter your house. He was very brave and didn't seem to care, you know, I mean, we're at 106 incidents at this point. Um, again, that, that's not just ransackings. That includes people seeing him and, and also the ones that are not necessarily attributed to him in 1973, but are p- possibly him or probably him. So, um, you know, in April of 74 is when they officially say the VR starts, right? And then in 73, there's a few incidents that they're claiming probably or possibly could be him, but they're not 100% sure. I included those at the beginning just because I feel like knowing this dude, he probably did start in 73. Um, and maybe he, a lot of it was they couldn't connect it fully because the MO was slightly different, but you know, this guy over time will shift his MO a little bit. I mean, he still has very signature things that he does, but he does shift his MO slightly. And what I find fascinating is he would, uh, he would go into homes and he would set up, you know, makeshift alarm systems where he would put like dishes or, you know, loud items next to doorways. So if someone came in and opened the door, they crash open, you know, into the glass or dish plates and makes a bunch of noise and he can hear them and escape. A lot of times he would leave an opening somewhere in the home. So he always had an escape route. So like, you know, if he came in a back door, he might leave that door open so that he could just run out the door. Doesn't have to worry about it. Just, you know, GTFO peace out. Um, yeah. So he's, he's really interesting to me. Um, very sophisticated in a way. Yeah. He obviously has to be staking these homes out to, to break into this number of homes and, you know, to only have a few people have a glimpse of him across all those events. He has to be spending a fair amount of time, like you said, scoping the places out and making sure he knows exactly when people are coming and going and kind of what their patterns are. But the, just the weird part to me is you know laying clothes out pouring orange juice on them or lining a hallway with men's (laughs) underwear there has to be some kind of there's definitely something wrong with the guy but there has to be some kind of like technical term for what he's doing i kind of feel like that that's sort of a way they could profile this guy because even though that it's a unique thing at each place it's just it's so random and so weird 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, he. This is the case that got me wanting to do a podcast on true crime, because the first time I heard about it, I mean, I'd been listening to true crime podcasts forever, and no one had talked about it. And when you find out how this story unfolds over the next several parts that we're going to do, um, you wonder how that's possible. And I'm getting, I'm going to guess that a portion of our audience will discover this case for the first time through us. Um, and if that's the case, you know, you're going to scratch your head and go, how did I never hear about this guy? Because to me, what ends up happening over the course of the next several um, years from 1975, I think through 1986, this dude, well, really all the way up till 2018, to be honest with you or today, this dude is so prolific yet. No one talks about him, but you hear of guys like David Berkowitz and, you know, to me, you know, people like are in love with that case, but I'm, that one's not as interesting to me. Uh, I think in that case, it's like four or five murders. I think it's four. And it's just like kind of random shootings. In this case, this dude is like so sophisticated in what he does. He's like the Boy Scout of <laughs> true crime. <laughs> it's it's so strange. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'll stop preaching about the case itself and, and get more into the detail here. But yeah, it, it, it's one of those things that just I really grabbed onto this one and was just like, I couldn't get enough after I, I first heard about it. September 11th, 1975, the daughter of Claude Snelling, a 16-year-old student at Mount Whitney High School named Beth, was at home with her family and her boyfriend. The windows were open in their home as their air conditioner had been acting up. Her boyfriend departed around 10 p.m. and the rest of the family went to bed shortly thereafter. Leading up to September 11th, several strange events had occurred at the Snelling residence. On February 5th, as we mentioned earlier, a prowler was reported looking into his daughter's windows. He chased after the man but lost him in the dark. Police were able to match the shoe prints found at the scene to those that match other prints where the VR had been. That's a point that we haven't really discussed much, but uh, one thing that linked a lot of these cases together was that when they would find prowler activity, they would match the shoe prints, and they were always the same shoe. And they were able to connect the VR to a lot of places based on the shoe print. September 6th through the 11th, several prowling reports occurred on Whitney and nearby streets. A week or two before, someone had broken into Claude Snelling's vehicles. On September 10th, the daughter heard a noise outside her bedroom window. She looked outside and didn't see anything as it was too dark. September 11th at 2.17 a.m., Beth had been sleeping when she woke up to a man lying on top of her, his hand covering her mouth. She was confused at first, but quickly realized what was happening. She thought it was her brother playing a joke, as he had done in the past, but once she looked into the man's eyes, she understood rather quickly this was someone else with bad intentions. She tried removing his hand from her mouth so that she could breathe. During the initial struggle, one of the braces that held up the bed snapped. During her struggle, the intruder growled at her. Don't scream or I'll stab you. She didn't know if he had a knife or not, but she believed he would indeed stab her, so she quit struggling and he removed his hand from her face. You're coming with me, he said. He reached back into his back pocket and pulled out a gun. 
He then proceeded to grab the girl by the arm and lift her up. The intruder began to drag her out of the bedroom as she asked him, Why are you doing this? Where are you taking me? The intruder remained silent as he removed her from the bedroom and escorted her through the dining room. She resisted, pulling away and jerking. She began to cry and violently tried to break free from his grip, but he was too strong. She dug her heels into the floor, trying desperately to stop from being pulled from the home. She was afraid of being shot, but more afraid of being taken from the house. The loud noise that came from her resisting woke her father and brother. The kidnapper made it to the back door, where it has already been left open and the porch light was still on. Don't scream or I will shoot you, he said to her as they left the home. She was still crying and could barely hear what he was saying. The intruder continued to take her from the home when Beth's father, Claude, looked out the kitchen window to find Beth being dragged outside. Claude ran out the door to confront the ransacker. As he came back through the door, the ransacker pushed Beth to the ground and fired two shots at Claude, dropping him to the ground. He continued to hit Beth with the gun and kick her, then disappeared into the night. Following the confrontation, Mrs. Snelling called for police. Beth headed back into her house and noticed that her father was down near the front door. Her mother handed her the phone and began tending to Claude Snelling. A police officer arrived quickly and an ambulance not long after that. He was transported to Kauai Delta Medical Center and was pronounced dead on arrival. Immediately after the shooting, police began searching for evidence. A nearby neighbor heard a noise in his yard and investigated. His front door was discovered to be wide open, but no one was there. However, they discovered a bicycle in his front yard. The bike matched a reportedly stolen bike from a woman's backyard on West Tulare on September 9th. Shoe impressions were found matching those of the VR. Mrs. Snelling's purse was located outside of the house on a brick planter in the backyard. Nothing major was taken from it other than a few $1 bills. It was assumed that the VR went through the purse before waking his victim. Also of note was that a badminton net on Gist Avenue was knocked down, possibly from the VR on his escape in the dark. This helped authorities to map his possible escape route. A ladder was also reportedly stolen from a residence located on the northernmost part of Whitney. They found the ladder a short distance away near the freeway. A flashlight was found in the backyard of a residence on Redwood. It was determined this was stolen on August 30th, 1975, from a residence two doors down. The big piece here is that the murder weapon was determined to be the 38 caliber Moroku revolver stolen in a previously mentioned burglary. The resident whose revolver was stolen had told police that he had used it for target practice a few weeks before the revolver was stolen. Police went to the location where they did their target practice and collected over 70 spent casings. They compared them to the ones found at the Snelling shooting and found them to be an exact match in relative quick fashion. This led them to believe the Vesalia ransacker was the killer. Over the coming months, several more potential VR reports had come in. A lot of prowler reports and a few attempted break-ins, as well as a harassing phone call report, were just a few of the highlights during the month of October of 1975. The calendar moved to November, and the, there was more of the same. Several ransackings and prowlings were reported. Many items were strewn about people's homes, including one incident on November 2nd where 12-gauge shotgun shells were stolen, alongside an empty purse and a man's wedding ring. In this West Country Avenue incident, he strewn women's undergarments across the baby's crib. For a person who had murdered someone a month prior, the VR seemed to continue on as if nothing had happened. There are now approximately 148 various incidents between the Prowler reports, ransackings, and attempted abduction, as well as a murder.
wow, I mean, that's a lot to unpack, right? I mean, <laughs> this guy, he is, I mean, he's stepping up his game at this point, right? I mean, entering a home and trying to abduct a girl from the home. And apparently he had some kind of affinity for this girl. I mean, he had prowled that house several different times. And so he knew exactly who he was after. He's definitely super busy. That's for sure. And yeah, he was very determined to take her out of the house. You know, he, he risked being caught, you know, struggling with her to get her out of the door or her kicking and screaming and, you know, resisting the whole way. But he still, he still, seemed like he remained determined to get her out of there. Yeah. And what's strange about that is, um, you know, a lot of times when people put up a fight against him or like, not really a fight, but like, you know, if people are alerted to him, he kind of like tries to just get out as fast as he can. Um, there's several incidents that we didn't really cover where he's caught by neighbors or somebody by when he's prowling and, you know, he just takes off. He's out of there. And then there's the one we talked about where he knocks down the woman who was returning to her apartment and he knocks her down and then takes off. And it's like, he only knocked her down probably because it was the only way out. And so, um, I, I don't know that for fact. So, you know, maybe there was another escape route he could have taken, but it seems to me like the, he felt that the only position he had was to go the way she was standing. So he knocked her down and took off running. Um, and so in this case, you know, it seems strange to me that he entered this home. I mean, he must have really liked this girl and he wanted to have her. And so he tried to see, I mean, he, he entered the home knowing people were in this house sleeping. And, you know, I think he, it, it was kind of strange, you know, he obviously was kind of, um, seems like at this point he's stepping up his game a little bit because whatever is getting him off while he's ransacking is now not doing it for him. Yeah. Right. What do you gather from the evidence that they found from the shell casings and then they went to the target range and, and pulled more shell casings there? I thought that was interesting and kind of a, an oversight on the ransacker's part. Why would he have dropped the shell casings out of that revolver? I mean, if you know, if you know how a revolver works, you can fire the rounds, but you have to manually eject the casings. And he shot, he shot the guy twice. Why would he have dumped the casings out of the gun and not just taken them with them? Or unless he left the gun. I don't I don't think that that was... I don't recall the gun being left behind. Right. Now, it could have been, and maybe I didn't catch that when I was doing my research, but, I mean, I think they took the ballistics from the, the bullets that hit the dude. No, took out Claude. Oh, okay. I think they probably recovered those two bullets that he fired. And then match them to the, the casings, bullets that they, yeah, the casings and bullets that they found at, uh, you know, the shooting. I don't even know if he was at an actual shooting range. He might have just been out in the country shooting. Right. Um, from what I gathered, that's what I feel like it was uh, because the way it was described, it was an area near a highway somewhere. Um, I don't know that it was an actual shooting range. I think it was just maybe a like a field or something where the guy was out practicing shooting this revolver. So, yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. And I mean, for the seventies, that was some really great police work. And that's the thing with this case. I mean, they do a lot of great police work, but they can never quite catch this guy. I mean, he's, you read some of these incidents and the things they're doing and, you know, they're connecting all these footprints to the VR and, you know, he, they're finding him prowling and staking out all these homes, but they just can't quite get ahead of him. He's always one step ahead somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, he, from the few people that did come across him and bump into him, he just sounds like an average guy, you know, 
five ten to six foot light hair. You know, he doesn't. He he didn't sound like he has any kind of distinguishing features that set him apart from you know. He does. He does one distinguishing feature. But the thing is, people. It seems though that the descriptions people give of him sometimes are wildly inconsistent from what it actually is. I mean, if you if you sit there and piece together like the consistent descriptions, like you can clearly make a picture of the guy. And um, he has a very round face. People always say, like unusually round and a big jaw. And that's, I think a distinguishing feature of this man is that, you know, he has this, you know, some of those people have that jaw with, you know, just this, he has this big round face and they describe him as really young looking almost. And I think that's, what's hard about this is people, when the people that do come across him and give a pretty good description of him, have a really hard time pinpointing his age. Cause he, I think he looks very young for his age. You know, like me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I cover up my <laughs> distinguishing features with hair, facial hair. So in case I'm ever you know, like tied to a crime, like I'm hiding this ginormous dimple in the middle of my chin with a bunch of hair. So, Oh, your yeah. butt chin. <laughs> <laughs> you can blow your nose and wipe your ass at exactly. the same time. <laughs> the mini ass. Oh, That's my right. goodness. <laughs> The calendar turned to December, and there was no sign of a slowdown for the VR. He had struck an estimated 100 homes, returning to the same neighborhoods. He would brazenly enter homes right next door to others he had just ransacked. He was showing no signs of being afraid of law enforcement, or even the homeowners for that matter. His brazen nature was showing that he was either so well prepared that he knew the patterns of the residents in these homes, which led him not to be so afraid of being caught, or he just didn't care. I tend to believe the former. He would rig homes with dishes near entryways to use a makeshift alert system should someone unexpectedly return. He would turn off furnaces and AC units to reduce the ambient noise. He also seemed to be one step ahead of law enforcement. After the Snelling homicide, the Visalia Priest Department began regularly sending out special patrols and stakeouts trying to catch the VR in the act. On December 9, 1975, police were made aware of shoe prints found outside of a home. This home would be a focus of the next police stakeout. December 10th, 6 p.m., Officer William McGowan planted himself inside the garage in the home next door to the victims. His partner was also watching the residents from across the street. Sometime after 6.30 p.m., a home was ransacked and burglarized on West Laurel Avenue. This location was about a half a mile away from the home on West Kauai where the officers were waiting. The subject appeared at their stakeout around 8.30 p.m. The VR appeared at the garage that Officer McGowan was staking out. He moved slowly against the shrubbery, crouching on his way to the opening of the garage. He peeked inside. Not noticing McGowan, McGowan began to follow the VR quietly and observed him as he was heading to the back gate, tampering with the lock. Officer McGowan clicked on his flashlight to surprise the shadowy figure, to which the VR replied, Oh my God! in a high-pitched shriek. He spun around and stared with squinted eyes into the beam of light and said, Oh no, oh my God, no. McGowan yelled, Police officer, hold it right there. The suspect, wearing his signature ski mask, rolled up on his head, reached up and removed his cap with his right hand and put it into his pocket and then took off running. He hopped a nearby gate, landing in the backyard where the footprints were noticed to begin with. Hold it, put your hands up, McGowan shouted. He chased the suspect over the fence as well. 
The suspect zigzagged across the yard while yelling, Oh my God, please don't hurt me. Oh my God, no. In his high-pitched voice, McGowan fired a warning shot into the ground to alert his partner, who already was in pursuit. The prowler ran straight for the fence and hopped it easily. McGowan again warned the suspect he was going to shoot. The suspect again responded with, Don't hurt me. Oh my God, please don't hurt me. In his shrieking voice, he stopped running. Just as the suspect had stopped running, he turned to his side so that the right half of his body was exposed to the police officer. Look, my hands are up. He dug around in his jacket with his left hand, to which he turned to face McGowan and fired a shot, striking his flashlight, which knocked him backwards from the fence. A nearby homeowner noticed the VR walking away and noticed the neighbor watching him. The VR then hopped through a few shrubs and bushes and disappeared into the night. So the one distinguishing thing we find out about the VR in this confrontation is that he's a very high-pitched, shrieky voice, especially when he's excited. Um, and so, again, great police work here, right? Police notice the footprints. They get an alert. They start staking out the area, especially after this Claude Snelling shooting. They are waiting for him. He shows up right where they think he's going to. Dude still gets away. And McGowan, his flashlight gets shot. And I believe shrapnel from either the bullet or the metal from the flashlight actually hits him in the eye. Um, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty a, a pretty intense scene, you know. Um, I just, when I read this and I'm, you know, reading through the incident, like, I still just can't believe he got away. What do you th- – yeah, I can't believe he got away, especially with two officers you know, near the scene of where everything unfolded. Mm-hmm. But what do you gather of – McGowan is you know, casing this guy. The guy has a ski mask rolled up on his head. He looks suspicious as hell. He's out sneaking around. They've already had 100-plus incidents. What do you think of him clicking on his flashlight to surprise the guy? Wouldn't you rather have – in that situation, instead of giving the guy the opportunity to know you're there and turn around and shoot you or stab you, just like jump on his back and take him to the ground in the dark. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking that same thing when I was you know reading through this. I'm like, why didn't he like take him down? But I don't know if he was either not close enough or he felt, you know, he obviously had to be far enough away that the guy didn't the the VR didn't notice him. So. To close in on him that quickly and not knowing if he's armed for, like, safety of yourself. Like, if he has a knife in his hand or something, or even a screwdriver or something, if you go try and tackle him, he's going to stab you. I mean, it's just going to happen. So, I don't – and it's dark out, you know. It's not like you get a good look at him, you know. You know how it is. And and so, he's, you know, rummaging around outside and kind of prowling and stuff, and and McGowan's following him and and keeping an eye on him, but – Again, this guy's a gun on him, and he didn't know that. And so, you know, he's obviously aware of the potential link to that to, to the VR to the murder. Mm-hmm. And so, you probably do want to keep your distance a little bit. Um, I just can't believe, you know, the VR. This is a man who is all about self-preservation. You know, he rigs those alarm systems. He turns off your furnace and AC so he can hear what's going on. He'll, you know, hit women. He'll knock them down to get out of the way. Uh, he, you know, he'll do anything when he's confronted. He shoots Claude Snelling. Like, he's not afraid to do what it takes to survive. 
in a sense. It's almost like he has this primal need to put himself in a fight or flight situation as if he were like, you know, um, you know, like someone trying to survive out in the wilderness or something, you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like he has this, this need, this urge to put himself in these strange situations so that he has to figure out a way out of it. And he's not afraid to do anything possible to get himself to, to, to escape. What do you think of him when he was fleeing and he knew he was potentially going to be caught, you know, screaming what, to me, it's described as almost like a little girl running away. Oh, no, don't hurt me. What do you <laughs> gather of that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so obviously the guy has some sort of inadequacy where he feels like, you know, like he's doing this for some reason, right? Like he feels either powerless or inadequate or something. And he has a higher pitched voice and people point that out, you know, who have, who encountered him and heard him speak. And the one thing that we'll find out, especially in the, in the next episode is when he does speak to the next people that really hear him talk, he always speaks in like a growl with clenched teeth. People always describe it like, I'm going to get you, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> And so it's really hard to hear that, you know, you're not going to hear his high pitched voice. And so he's obviously like trying to mask that because it's a defining characteristic of who he is. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't really make much of him shrieking. I, I'm him yelling, you know, don't hurt me. I think that's just kind of his way of trying to diffuse the situation a little bit, you know, like almost it may it may have even worked in the sense that like McGowan didn't shoot at him instead he fires a warning shot so his partner can hear because the guy sounds like he's gonna give up almost but then he takes off running <laughs> hops some fences and then shoots <laughs> um I don't know what do you think about oh, my that? thought was kind of a little bit opposite of that I to me, I, I almost think that he might have used it as a tactic to deter the officer to think that, you know, to make him think that maybe he necessarily wasn't the ransacker, but he was just some random dude, you know, going somewhere and that he was playing the victim card. Like, you know, don't hurt me. Don't shoot me. I'm, I, you know, I didn't mean to be here at this time or whatever, you know, just to try to throw the cop off and make him think in his head, well, maybe this isn't the guy. This guy, you know, screaming like a little girl sounds like a real pussy. He might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Well, maybe not, but that's just, I I don't know if it was a diversion tactic or not. I think it was a diversion tactic, but not in the sense that he was trying to throw them off of him being the VR. Because, I mean, I don't know that in that moment he's worried about them. Like, I mean, he is subconsciously worried about him being connected as a VR because he murdered somebody. And so that's why he ends up going to the lengths he does where he shoots and takes off, mm-hmm. right? Because if he's just arrested for ransacking and stealing things, like, yeah, you're going to get in trouble. But And he did a lot of it. But, I mean, what's he going to end up in? I mean, we've done cases where people murder people and get out of jail in a couple of years. Like, 
is this guy really going to be in jail that long? Not really, but he did murder somebody and has all these ransacking, so he's clearly a maniac. Um, I think he does it more or less to try and get the officer's guard down a little bit so then he can figure out a way to escape, you know, where he's saying like, oh, my God, don't shoot. No, 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 no. And, you know, like, like, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And he's and when he says that, that those kind of words, you know, when you're saying don't hurt me, they kind of in a way present that you are not a threat back in this instance. Like you're not you're not thinking about violence because you don't want to be hurt. You're like saying, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I give up. Don't hurt me. You know, like kind of that thing, um, almost in a submissive way. And then he turns around and then pulls out a gun and shoots at him, you know. And so, um, you know, the, the one interesting thing here is, you know, people talk a lot about like whether the VR meant to shoot the flashlight or meant to shoot the officer. I'm of the belief he was trying to shoot the officer. Oh, yeah, I am, too, because if, you know, the officer is probably holding, you know, holding the flashlight over his shoulder, you know, shining it out to see yeah. where he can, you know, his line of sight is where he's aiming the light. So. I think he was just a little bit off on his shot. I think it grazed the flashlight. He probably had it over his shoulder and a piece of that, either that bullet fragment or that flashlight chipped off and went into his eye because he's holding the flashlight up next to his head. Mm -hmm. I think he had it. I think he says he had it in front of him, like probably holding it with his gun. I would imagine, you know how they do the flashlight and the gun too, almost like a laser sight. I think he had it like that would be my guess. And then, you know, VR turns around, fires a shot, boom, hits the flashlight, shrapnel flies off, hits the dude in the eye, um, you know, and, and McGowan goes down. And then at that point, VR escapes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we end up with, I believe, a, I think it's 101 homes that he ransacks at this point. And... You know, he and and one murder and one attempted murder. Yeah. So I mean that's pretty <laughs> And he and almost but wasn't caught, which is crazy. He he's done it so much that they knew where to stake out, where to hide. Almost had him but didn't. Yeah, and you know, he always wore gloves too to make sure that he was, you know, never leaving fingerprints behind. Um, he would scale fences. He would use bikes to get away a lot of times. So it wasn't a car. He would get on a bike and he would steal bikes from people and use them and then drop them and get another one. Like he was always rotating things around, um, which was always interesting. You know, like he was always keeping ahead by not using the same things for too long. I mean, he had the exact same or basically the exact same MO for the entire string of burglaries, but what he was doing was always keeping himself from being identified by wearing gloves and riding bikes and swapping those things out. Like, and then he would change his ski masks too. Um, you know, so he was always kind of changing things up while actually doing the same thing. I mean, it's kind of strange, but he was able to do that in a way it was, uh, you know, it was crazy. And, and he would also even like ransack homes, you know, in multiple homes in the same day, which was just absolutely insane. Like when you really think about it, that's, uh, that's pretty crazy. It sounds like the only thing that he didn't rotate or change out was his shoes. 
they were able to draw a pattern on his shoes. So he must have only had the one pair of shoes that he wore to every incident or crime. Yeah, and that's kind of strange to me. Um, unless he felt like that particular shoe was so common that the only thing they could get was the the pattern and the size. But narrowing it down from there would be next to impossible. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that he knew whatever shoe he had was just so common that it was almost impossible to to track it down beyond knowing the pattern and the size to connect it. Yeah, that's true. What So what shoe would have been popular in the mid-70s that everybody would have had? Go back to the Chuck Taylors or what? <laughs> I don't know. It could have been those. Uh, what They have the Adidas. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Those low-top Adidas shoes. Oh, yeah. They're pretty generic. Like, like the similar to the flat sole like soccer type shoe. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not uh, a sneakerhead, so I couldn't really tell you much about them beyond that. But yeah, especially from shoes before I was born. <laughs> and I don't remember what <laughs> shoes I was wearing when I was one and two years old, so. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, – you know, you probably had on your little booty shoes with like no, they have no soles on them. They're just like the the smooth yeah, leather. The leather skid pads on the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> or no shoes at all. I have a feeling it was mostly no shoes at all because I don't like to wear shoes now. So I'm, I'm that. Yeah. I, I like maybe. to roll like the, I'm that barefooted hillbilly still a little bit. This is just, uh, this is, I, I mean, it, it just, it continues on from here, right? And and this is only part one of the story. And so, you know, it, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier as we go on. But this guy was so prolific in his own right that at just, you know, I mean, we he did over 100 ransackings or right about, I think, these are a hundred is between a hundred and a hundred and two. I, I, I don't have it in my notes here, but, uh, you know, it was definitely in the triple digits at this point, which is just absolutely astounding. And he never gets caught. Yeah. And, and to preface that, that's, this is just the beginning of this case we're, we're looking at multiple parts to, to go through all of the details of this case and to think that, 100 ransackings and one murder and we're just getting started that this guy's already prolific and and this this is just we're just coming out of the gate with this that being said um we're going to sign off for this week and uh you can join us for part two of the golden state killer series as we reconvene next monday so for david and craig We will see you guys next week. Stay safe.